Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. The vast majority of people on Twitter and with newspaper columns do agree with Lineker, and that is the fundamental problem. Well, stuff them. Four. Labour says oh, we want more safe and secure routes. For how many people? It's just pie in the sky. Three. I hope, obviously, that I will be remembered as a leading member of a government which changed everything. Is he a Bond villain, or was he the health secretary for England and Wales? One. We have liftoff. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. He's been on the wrong side of this issue his entire career, declared the Prime Minister from the Commons Dispatch Box. Another lefty lawyer standing in our way. These were the words Rishi Sunak lobbed at Labour leader Keir Starmer at Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday. The government is, he says, determined to tackle illegal immigration. And with 45,000 crossing the channel in small boats in 2022, and the pace of such immigration already higher than that this year, it's a hugely controversial issue. Gary Lineker may have 8 million Twitter followers co-pilot, but polls show a majority of the UK's 50 million strong electorate want this small boats issue sorted, hence the government's controversial illegal immigration bill presented to Parliament earlier this week. You've written a corker of a column on Matt Hancock and the Telegraph's <laughs> astonishing lockdown files in Wednesday's paper, Alison. There's a link in the show notes to this episode. Likewise, my latest article ahead of next week's spring budget, in which I hail the appearance of economic green shoots. But let's start with the small boats. Can the Tories get this legislation through? Or will the massed ranks of shocked MPs, establishment peers and what the Prime Minister calls lefty lawyers prove to be too much? It's a great question, Liam. I always like it when you refer to one of my columns as an absolute cork because that means Pearson's gone nuts, doesn't it? <laughs> She's gone into one. Oh, no. I think I did show that particular column to my beloved in Pearson Towers. <laughs> Always just sort of rolls his eyes and runs out of the kitchen. I think I've called for Matthew Hancock to be imprisoned. That seems perfectly reasonable demand. I think you want to bring back the stocks. <laughs> Actually, I really, really do. So there's no veg to throw at him, is there? Anyway, yes, yeah, stopping small boats. One of Rishi's five pledges. Now, make no mistake, this is a tremendous crisis. They're predicting 90,000 mainly young men coming across the channel this year, hotels and B&Bs across the country, but largely, Liam, not across the country, but mainly in the poorer northern areas of the country, costing us 7 million a day. So it really is a ticking time bomb for the Conservatives. And along comes the latest 
in a very long line of attempts to do something about illegal migration. Now, Suella Braverman, you've recently done a, a very thoughtful interview with her, which we'll talk about, but she's announced plans this week to swiftly remove almost everyone who arrives in the UK via small boats. The Home Secretary said current asylum laws are not fit for purpose. You can say that again. And patience has run out among the law-abiding patriotic majority. Now, this is very interestingly, but there is no mistaking the toughness with which Rishi Sunak, quite a mild-mannered chap, is going in on this. <laughs> They're releasing, actually, some pretty tough posters and social media memes. There's a picture of Rishi with a backdrop of a union jack. It's very simple. It's this country and government who should decide who comes here, not criminal gangs. Our new laws show we will do what is necessary to achieve that if you enter the UK illegally, you will be detained immediately, removed to a safe country within weeks, banned from claiming asylum in the UK, denied access to the UK's modern slavery system, stopped from making late and spurious claims to frustrate removals. Rishi Sunak will stop the boats. Now, I suppose that the seven million quid a day question is whether any of the chaps on the shores in Calais are going to be deterred by this tough talking. What do you think, Liam? I think you're right. Rishi Sunak is going in hard on this, not because he particularly wants to, but he knows how heavily this plays, not just in Conservative seats, but also in Labour seats as well. This really is a huge issue. And yeah. while the majority of the commentariat, the political media class, will silently or not so silently agree very much with Gary Lineker, who compared this government bill to language used in Germany during the 1930s, a pretty astonishing thing to say, there will be a silent majority of people who are saying, we're from a tolerant country, we're very welcoming to immigrants, immigration's been great for this country, but we need to stem the pace at which illegal immigration is happening because of the cost and because of the unfairness and the danger to life and limb as people cross the channel in those small boats. And I did interview Swella Brabham for GB News a couple of weeks ago, and I made the point in the interview and subsequently that though she's sort of, you know, Cambridge and she's a barrister and all the rest of it, I know exactly where she's from. She's from a pretty nondescript, unfashionable northwest London suburb, the same one as me as it happens. Mm. I know exactly where she grew up. She grew up in a family very similar to a lot of the Asian families that I grew up in, where education was everything, money was tight, and people were incredibly proud to be in the UK doing their thing, having jumped through many administrative hoops in some circumstances. And there are a lot of people like that in the UK. There are a lot of people among the lower middle classes who just think it's mad that we are allowing this to happen. And mm. they will be cheering Suella Braveman silently, mm. They won't be writing columns in the newspapers. They won't be on Twitter because they're not really on Twitter. These are the kind of people who watch the BBC and silently curse under their breath because they feel derided and patronised by a lot of the coverage. It's not that Britain is intolerant, in my view. On the contrary, endless global opinion polls show that we are very, very tolerant and we give immigrants an incredible welcome and attitude towards immigration in this country 
is very, very positive overall. That's why the far right in the UK has never been anything but a political gnat, unlike in Germany, Italy, Spain, France, Greece, all these countries that are heralded as the height of European sophistication by our bien pensant commentariats, but actually where attitudes towards immigration are much, much tougher. In my view, it's the combination of the fact that it's easy to disappear in the UK, it's easy to get work in the UK, it's easy to operate in the UK given the English language. That is attracting more and more and more people Yes, we need immigration. I'm, I'm from immigrant stock. I spent my whole life arguing for more immigration, but it must be ordered. It must be legal. And if it's not, then public tolerance of immigration will be shattered. And that's the problem that a lot of people like Sweller Braveman, a lot of people from immigrant communities themselves feel. And I just don't think our political class gets that because they don't come from the same kind of proletariat background that Suella Braverman comes from. I'm just really sick, Liam. I mean, you speak so well and so compassionately, but I'm just very impatient of the pussyfooting around. Last year, 12,000 Albanians, mainly young, fit men, crossed the channel. Do we think they are victims of modern slavery? No, they're bloody well not. It's absolutely ridiculous. And France and Germany and Austria, they are far less squeamish than the UK about booting these guys out the moment they arrive. So our country has been, I think, probably far too nice with this. I don't know what proportion, a really small proportion of the people making those illegal crossings, paying people smugglers thousands of pounds to come to this country illegally. And I think of the people in huge refugee camps across Lebanon, across Turkey, indeed, where where I go, millions and millions of people, many of them persecuted Christians who could be coming to this country legally, and we would be able to welcome them with open arms, instead of which we have young men arriving here in, in large numbers and presenting if not a threat, then making communities very, very uncomfortable. And it really annoys me when you see Gary Lineker from his privileged perch saying, I will continue to try to speak up for those without a voice. Great, Gary. How about speaking up for people in Skegness whose small B&Bs and hotels, their businesses are being ruined because Skegness, a small town on the East Coast, which I know well, Skegness, it's so bracing. Lincolnshire's finest. Lincolnshire's finest. So there we have towns like that having enormous numbers of migrants dropped on them. It's causing a lot of difficulty. And something that struck me the other day, I was listening to the PM programme presented by Evan Davis. And Evan had talked at the top of the programme to someone who'd come across the channel. If you and I had been interviewing him, holes in his stories like the Grand Canyon, I mean, absolutely unbelievable. And then it was almost straight away into the crisis in British dentistry. And I was thinking, 
none of these people, they never join the dots, do they? Why can't people get a British dentist? Why? We can't because we've allowed in last year 504,000 new people with immigration and our public services, our housing, our health service are under vast strain. And the Conservative government, which its traditional strength is immigration. And after 13 years, the position with immigration is absolutely disgraceful. So that's my rant for the day on it. But what I want to ask you now, Liam, is uh, Suella has said she's confident that this bill is compatible with international law. But on the frontispiece of the bill, under the title European Convention on Human Rights, Home Secretary Suella Braverman says, I am unable to make a statement that, in my view, the provisions of the Illegal Migration Bill are compatible with the Convention rights, but the government nonetheless wishes the House to proceed with the bill. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but something very unusual is going on there, co-pilot. They are trying to stretch the boundaries of international law. That was a direct quote from a Whitehall Permanent Secretary to me in the aftermath of my interview with the Home Secretary. She wants the UK leaving the ECHR to be left on the table as a threat. She wants it to be in the next Tory manifesto. But of course, the ECHR was written by British lawyers and MPs in the aftermath of the Second World War. It was a direct response to the humanitarian catastrophe and atrocities of the Second World War. And British legal minds and lawmakers came in and literally restructured the European legal order with the ECHR, which we were the first country to ratify. The symbolism of leaving the ECHR is absolutely huge. And the Home Secretary's got the stomach for it, as she told me. I'm not sure the Prime Minister has, but Swella Braverman wants it as an option in case the Lords try to block this illegal immigration bill. The essence of this illegal immigration bill is that... People entering the UK will be able legally to be removed, even if they appeal to the ECHR and the Strasbourg Court. So they're not held here, so then they can't disappear here, as so many do, when they're living in hotels at the taxpayer's expense. Look, I have a very, very nuanced and sophisticated view about immigration. Yes, of course, there's a massive shortage of houses, Alison, but who built all the houses? Immigrants, right? So... There are many ways we can solve this problem, but what really worries me is that the very, very tolerant and generous nature of the British people towards immigration, immigration that we need in order to keep the economy boosted and rolling, in order to keep progressing as a nation, the pace of that immigration must be ordered. It must be seen to be under control. Otherwise, the tolerance that British people have towards immigration, the incredible integration stories that we've had In general, of course, there are some problems. All those are at threat. It really tears at the social fabric. If you are at the sharp end of society, competing for low-income jobs, competing for council housing, competing for state dentistry and healthcare, competing for a primary school place for your kid, then the fact that there are so many new people arriving illegally, that really gets people's heckles up. And I think a lot of people here agree with me. We do need to get some kind of a handle on this. It's got to be done in a humane way. And my concern is, is if we have, if we can't get this bill through as it is, Alison, 
and we move to the next step of taking the UK out of the ECHR, I just don't think the British kind of political system could stand that. I think there would be a huge nervous breakdown. I think there would be, again, a kind of Brexit-style people versus parliament thing going on. And it could get nasty, given the symbolism of what the ECHR represents. So I sincerely hope that we can get our arms around this problem, come up with a system that works, that passes legal muster without leaving the ECHR. Because I think if we do try and leave the ECHR, the culture wars that we've seen about this issue already will get much, much more severe. I think this is a rare occasion, Copilot, when you and I don't agree. Mm. I think if we have to leave the ECHR to be able to control our borders, then we're going to have to leave it. And I mm. think Suella Braverman agrees with me. I know it was introduced in the post-war era and it was extremely idealistic and admirable, but times have changed. There are tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people across the world who would like to live in Tunbridge Wells. I mean, they can't. That's it. At some point, when I see Yvette Cooper standing up and accusing the government of gimmicks and being deluded and so on and Keir Starmer attacking Rishi, I just think, what is your solution? Because what is Labour offering? Labour says, oh, you know, we want more safe and secure routes. For how many people? It's just pie in the sky. What Labour basically means, there's too many people, Liam, on the Labour backbenches who just think we should have open borders. They should be honest about that and they should put that choice to the British people. Because you said, I think some people agree with me. Most people agree with you. The polling is very clear. Most of the people do not agree with Gary Lineker by any stretch of the imagination. But the vast majority of people on Twitter and with newspaper columns and who are broadcast journalists do agree with Gary Lineker. And that is the fundamental problem. Well, stuff them because they're not representing the British people. And the British people, as you've said, have been massively tolerant. This is one of the best places in the world to live. It's one of the least racist countries in the world. It won't go on being one of the least racist countries if they bring in thousands of young men who don't integrate. It's a powder keg, really. And it really annoys me because we shouldn't be having to be defensive. I hear in your tone a defensiveness about you actually, you know, sticking up for views that I'm sure most denizens of Planet Normal agree with Suella Braverman and with Rishi. And when Rishi says, this is the people's priority, you think, yeah, about bloody time you said something like that. And I'll tell you something, Liam, they got no poll bounce from that Windsor framework last week. Nothing, no poll bounce for the government for reaching a new deal over Northern Ireland, but they will get a poll bounce for talking tough on the small boats, I bet you. So it's going to be hugely beneficial. And I think we can see the clear blue water now opening up because the Tories can paint themselves going into the next election as the doughty champions of ordinary voters, including people inclined to vote Labour in the Red Wall, pitted against fancy human rights lawyers like Sir Keir Starmer, to pick a name at random. <laughs> I think we both want the same outcome, Alison. We both want an immigration system that seemed to be fair and ordered, an immigration system that inspires confidence across the country, an immigration system which does allow legal channels for genuine asylum yeah. seekers. And this country, of course, has an extremely distinguished track record of allowing in asylum seekers. And we'd agree on that. But I think it's a question of sort of strategy and tactics. 
I think if they do go for the real red meat option of leaving the ECHR, then the policy will blow up in their face. I think if they can get around the ECHR by having a domestic bill that allows them to process ECHR referrals in a third country, then that tactically, strategically is the outcome, in my view, which is most likely to hold the road and then not become a political football for a generation. But this issue is going to go on. And it's incredible, Alison. We got 20 minutes in mm. on the Rocket of Right Thinking and we haven't even mentioned Isabel Oakshot. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Isabel is getting all, all, all the brickbats for, for doing the job of journalism, which, as we know, has fallen into disrepute in the last three years. What a sort of 10 days, two weeks it's been, hasn't it, for the Telegraph publishing every day some new jaw-dropping bombshell from the so-called lockdown files. I'm sure listeners will be familiar with the hundreds of thousands of WhatsApp messages from the phone of Matt Hancock. Yeah, I had a go this week, as, as you said at the top, Liam, in my column. Fuming! Fuming, fuming. <laughs> yeah, we had an urgent question in Parliament this week about the Sue Gray case. Sue Gray, the investigator of Partygate, suddenly being announced as Keir Starmer's new chief of staff. You know, obviously, civil service impartiality or lack of is an interesting question and does deserve attention, but not a dicky bird in the Commons on 10 days of the most damning imaginable revelations in the Telegraph's lockdown files. And I think that what we're seeing, Liam, is that politicians and much of the media are embarrassed, they're defensive, they're even ashamed or in denial, because what is being revealed is what we said for so long here on Planet Normal. Matt Hancock and his team were indeed weaponizing the new variants to control the population. And, and, and the phrase of the week for me was frighten the pants off everyone. Unbelievable. Said our then Secretary of State. And also, when do we deploy the new variant? Is he a Bond villain or was he the Health Secretary for England and Wales? And plus, we also have Simon Case, the most senior civil servant in the country, not acting as a moderating influence on Hancock, but saying things like, let's ramp up the fear slash guilt Absolutely astonishing. So among the highlights of the lockdown files this week, we found out that Gavin Williamson, I'm going to make a little apology to Gav here. Gavin Williamson, then Education Secretary. That's a phrase I never thought I'd hear. Ever. Never hear, ever. No. I said it very quickly. I'm going to make that my ringtone. <laughs> Gavin wanted schools not to be closed. He appeared to win the argument, but Matt Hancock in his WhatsApp said he was fighting a rearguard action so that schools were closed again on no scientific evidence whatsoever. The educational and emotional well-being of millions of children thrown under a bus. We also heard that Hancock rejected a plan to cut the isolation time. Chris Whitty, then chief medical officer, advised replacing the 14-day quarantine with just five days of testing. But Hancock, listen to this co-pilot, he reacted saying that that would imply we'd been getting it wrong. <laughs> Crikey. Nothing like following the science, eh? <laughs> science is meant to be claim and counterclaim, test and counter-test, hypothesis and another tested hypothesis. I must say, to have Simon Case 
as such a senior civil servant, describing the herbivorous Alex Sharma, somebody very much from the kind of centre of the Conservative Party, as uh, a pure conservative ideologist. Yes. It's just completely unsustainable. And I can't understand how it's tolerable for somebody like Sue Gray, who was absolutely at the heart of the civil service ethics establishment, knowing the innermost secrets of cabinet ministers as they come in to high office. How could a person like that possibly become a kind of political bag carrier to the leader of the opposition? It's grotesque. It completely tears up everything about the British civil service since Northcote Trevelyan, the whole idea of impartiality. And look, I was at university with some of this country's top civil servants. And to a man and woman, they are decent, hardworking people. They're mainly on the left, but they get on with it. They ascribe to the notion that civil servants advise and ministers decide. But there is now an increasingly wide seam of civil servants who think it is their job to oppose a democratically elected, on a landslide, by the way, conservative government. And that doesn't sit well with me. That shouldn't sit well with anyone, however you vote, because our impartial civil service really is vital to the way we run this country and the strength of our institutions. And I can't think of anything more damaging than these WhatsApp messages from the bloke who is now the most senior civil servant in the land and then the person at the centre of Whitehall's ethics committees then going off to work for a leader of the opposition. It's just quite astonishing. One of the stories that really cut through this week was that obviously there were, by the beginning of the the movement to go into the second lockdown, and then you'll remember coming out into these completely bonkers regional tiers, T-I-E-R-S, not tiers, although there were were plenty of those. Tiers of a clown, I think. If I'd have been editor of the Daily Star, (laughs) because they call Hancock (laughs) Bozo Hancock, don't they? There'd have been tiers of a clown. There you go. I'm lost at the Telegraph. I should be editing a tabloid. So there's this incredible Daily Star headline where Dominic Cummings had been testifying to the Parliamentary Select Committee and he had reported that Boris Johnson had called Matt Hancock, then Health Secretary, effing hopeless. And the Daily Star headline was, hopeless bloke says hopeless bloke is hopeless, says hopeless bloke. Asterix. We think we've got that right. That was the front page. That was almost as good as the Daily Star front page the other week when the Windsor framework came out. The Daily Star front page was something about Brexit, page three. (laughs) Absolute genius. I mean, it now comes to something, doesn't it? The front page of the Daily Star seems to be the sort of... intellectual pinnacle of British journalism (laughs) cutting through. It really is. But, you know, we can laugh, can't we? Hopeless bloke. But hopeless bloke was, you know, we had Conservative MPs, people of genuine conscience and stature, Sir Graham Brady's, Charles Walker, Andrew Ledson, Miriam Cates, Esther McVeigh. They did foresee the damage coming up. So they did plan to rebel when the country was about to be plunged into the... The whole COVID recovery group, Mark Harper... That's right. ...was running it. He is now the Transport Secretary. There are some incredibly decent, competent people. As you said, Alison, it wasn't courageous of Boris Johnson to not send us into lockdown for a second Christmas in a row. Do you remember those days? In your phrase, the then Prime Minister didn't hold his nerve. He had his nerve held for him, didn't he? 
He did by all these people. But what comes out in the WhatsApps is that these people were being treated as traitors. And Matt Hancock had discussed a plan with his aide, Alan Nixon, to take off the table a learning disability hub in Berry, where the MP James Daly was about to follow his conscience and vote against the government. So just when you think the slithy tove has sunk as low as it's humanly possible to get, he uses children with special educational needs as leverage to blackmail and bully the colleagues who are doing what's right for the rest of the people. Let's end with this. Are there grounds for a prosecution against Matt Hancock? That's something my column asked. I talked to a very senior barrister. Did Matt Hancock willfully misconduct himself to such a degree as to amount to an abuse of the public's trust in the office holder without reasonable excuse or justification? I'm told that there may be uh, grounds for such a case. Certain families of care home residents who were entombed in their care homes for 18 months or two years are preparing a private prosecution against Matt Hancock. And it will, Liam, be up to the Crown prosecution to decide if it's in the public interest to proceed. I think with the third anniversary of lockdown looming, watch this space. War in Ukraine is reshaping our world. For the past 12 months, the Telegraph's team of experts in London and correspondents on the ground have been analysing Putin's invasion of Ukraine every weekday on the Ukraine The Latest podcast. With over 24 million listens, Ukraine The Latest is the go-to source for up-to-date analysis on the war from every angle. Military, humanitarian, political, economic, historical, just to name a few. Each episode, we unpack the past 24 hours of the conflict, as well as regularly being joined by our own on-the-ground correspondents and guests who take us into their own experience of the war. Search for Ukraine The Latest in the same place you're listening to this podcast and follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thank you for listening. Now we've welcomed some big hitters in the past onto the rocket of right thinking, Alison, but this week's guest is a bit special. Nigel Lawson, Chancellor of the Exchequer from 1983 to 1989, is a giant of British politics. A man of huge intellect, he was one of the main architects of Thatcherism, doing more, in my view, than any other policymaker. To rescue Britain from the torpor of the late 1970s and early 80s, slashing personal and business taxation, renewing international confidence in our economy, paving a way for the growth of the 1990s. I'm extremely proud, Alison, that Lord Lawson has, over many years, been a keen reader of my Telegraph columns, offering me thoughts and feedback. Now in his early 90s, he is, in his own words, frail. But he remains sharp, as you'll hear, a treasure trove of fascinating recollections and insight. I was delighted when Lord Lawson invited me for lunch at his home on the South Coast. I haven't got much that's interesting to say, he told me, but I'd be happy to give you an interview. As a share of GDP, Lord Lawson, our tax burden is now at a 70-year high. Hmm. Philosophically, does that bother you? Well, it's certainly undesirable and unsatisfactory. Do you think it's good for the British economy that the tax burden's the highest since Clement Attlee? No, I don't think it is. 
And would you like to see a Conservative government bring that tax burden down? Well, I would like to see that, but the Conservatives have been in office for an unusually long time, and I don't see that they're likely to be able to bring it down. Rishi, the new Prime Minister, is a good guy, and I think in the circumstances he was the right choice as a successor to Boris, but I don't think that he's going to be known for his tax cutting. The government's planning to increase corporation tax from 19 to 25% in April, as, as you know, Lord Lawson. That will be the first rise in corporation tax for over 50 years at a time when the economy is fragile. Should the Chancellor rethink that move? Well, I do think that he should, but... Uh, We shall see. I mean, I'm coming to the end of my life. I'm in my 90s. And I don't expect for the short time that remains to me, I don't expect to see much change. That doesn't make me happy, but it's a fact. When he wanted to be Conservative leader, he campaigned last summer, of course, you'll remember. Jeremy Hunt said the rate of corporation tax should go down to 15%. He said in the past it should be 12.5% as it is in the Republic of Ireland. He's ascribed specifically the policies of you and then Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher creating the environment, the entrepreneurial room for manoeuvre that inspired him to become a businessman, to make money, to form companies. And yet he doesn't seem to be doing the same for the current generation of young people. I don't think that there's anything new to come from the Conservative Party as it now is. It is going to have to reinvent itself, but I don't see that coming soon. Margaret Thatcher was, of course, a conviction politician. You were a conviction politician. Very much so. You took risks. You made history. You got things done. Do you see conviction politicians in today's Conservative Party? Well, I don't really know today's Conservative Party. I do have some old friends in the party who are still alive, not so many. But I don't want to sound boastful in any way. But I think that my time, my period at the top of the party, and very close to the top, was a good time, both for the country and for the party. What's it like to give a budget in the House of Commons to have the papers post headlines like Nice One Nigel, to see the impact of your bold policies on the country, to see your policies actually working and generating wealth and prosperity? Well, it's very kind of you, Liam. I think there is little doubt that the policies were successful. Not, I'm sure, faultless, but they were successful. And I think we have benefited as a country from that enormously. But, you know, the past is past. I'm coming very close to the end of my career and my lifetime. And uh, I find it slightly more comfortable to look back on the past, which was, I would say, successful, rather than to speculate on what might happen in the future. 
What's your proudest memory when it comes to politics? Oh, this, this sounds very conceited. But I do think that we, as the Thatcher government, left the country in a much better state than we found it. It's a lot less controversial to say that these days than it was at the time. Right. Quite right. It must have been daunting coming into politics in the 70s with Britain very much in decline, very tumultuous industrial relations, the IMF bailout in 1976. Well, I came into politics in a way that's connected with that. I had been a journalist for many years and was writing about what governments were doing wrong, as journalists do. And I thought that if I knew better, I ought to get into politics and have a go at doing it. So that's how it happened. And how difficult was it at the time to push those policies through? A lot of what the Thatcher government did was quite controversial. Mm. Did you ever lose faith? Obviously, you famously fell out with Margaret Thatcher. We'll come on to that. That was a lot later. But the general philosophical thrust of what you were doing, lower tax, less regulation, no, more enterprise. I was very much in line with my own thinking as it had developed. People remember my resignation, which was over a trivial thing, really. You fell out with Mrs Thatcher's advisor, Alan Walters, didn't you? Yes, that's right. But I always felt that this was an error on her part, as one would perhaps have, <laughs> an error on her part. But if you say to a prime minister, as I did say to her, Unless you get rid of Alan Walters. It's him or me, you said, it's basically, didn't you? Yeah. That's a big move for you. Care. It was, and it was not planned, but that's where we had got to. But meanwhile, we had achieved a great deal in government together, very harmoniously. As you outlined in your memoirs, of course, The View from Number 11, I think Sir Geoffrey Howe's resignation, your resignation... You two lit the touch paper for the beginning of the end of Margaret Thatcher. What was it like to watch her from the back benches basically self-implode? Well, it was very sad, I thought. I don't think it was any good for the Conservative nor any good for the country. But uh, what happens, happens. Did you feel a bit of guilt? You were an extremely powerful chancellor, a symbol to a lot of the country. Well, it's a big job. And your resignation certainly gave her a good shove towards the exit Mm. door. Well, I think it did play a strong part in that. That was not the intention. The intention was to preserve and protect the course on which the government had been working for a considerable time. But anyhow, life whether you're talking about political life or any other form of life, is unlikely to be an unalloyed period of success. Was she the greatest British Prime Minister since Churchill? Yes, in my opinion. She was obviously not perfect. None of us is. But um, I think she was certainly the greatest leader that the country has had 
and the Conservative Party has had since Churchill. And if you remember the depths to which this country has sunk before she came on the scene and was surprisingly, in many ways, elected leader, then the difference is very great indeed. So, although it all went sour at the end, I think that, by and large, it was very successful. You and I have talked over the years about the way the Western world responded to the global financial crisis. We've talked a lot about how central banks have responded, quantitative easing. We've expanded the central bank's balance sheet by almost £900 billion. You've seen a lot of politics and policy over your long life as a journalist and a politician. Are you worried about that? How do you think all this money printing will end? Well, I can't give you a prediction, but I am concerned. I'm not impressed by the intellectual mood of the present day. And how do you think the Bank of England's getting on? I know you were very concerned about inflation in 2020, 2021. The bank was saying until late 2021, this inflation was transitory. But even before the war in Ukraine, we had inflation at a 30-year high, didn't we? Yes, it's been going wrong slowly, but for a long time. I think the bank is an institution that needs to be led by a governor who understands all these things. I think Mervyn was a particularly good governor, but uh, I don't think that since his time, the bank's performance has been particularly great. What are your thoughts on um, Boris Johnson? How did you feel in December 2019 when he won that landslide? Well, I was very keen that he would be elected leader because the direction of government needed to be changed, which meant a change of government, and it meant supporting the Tories under Boris Johnson. It is an enormous talent, but the one thing he's really good at is winning elections. There is no Conservative who has ever won the election for Mayor of London. And he did that twice. He did it twice. Mm. So what was his downfall? Well, I think that, I just think, sorry, it's a very sweeping statement, but I think there are various characteristics which made this a serious problem. The range of characters which are necessary to be a successful politician at the peak of government are very difficult to sum up. But there's no doubt that Boris has some of those characters, but not all. Do you think he'll make a comeback? No, I don't think so. If he does make a comeback, I am not going to be depressed but I don't see it. In 2013, you were, I think, the first very, very senior mainstream conservative who wrote via an article in the Times that you thought we should leave the European Union. Oh, yes. Have we taken back control? 
you know, we have taken back some control, but it was the only way to go. I mean, the European Union was something which didn't correspond with where the British people were or where the needs of the economy were. I mean, what was of the first importance was that we should recover our desire for self-government. That was what it was all about. It was not possible within the constraints of membership of the European Union to exercise self-government. And I had felt for a very long time that, right or wrong, we were a country of sufficient strength to govern ourselves and not be governed by others, which is what the membership of the European Union involves. So here we are. I've got one last question, if I may. And my last question is, you are a very significant figure in British post-war well, history. I was once. <laughs> How would you like to be remembered? Well, one doesn't go into politics for reasons of vanity. I hope, obviously, that I will be remembered as a leading member of a government which changed everything in this country, not just economic, but it embraced that and went further. Lord Lawson, thanks so much for talking to me. Well, thank you, Liam. Well, as I say, and I won't say it again, I don't think I've got anything <laughs> to say of any interest. Well, there you go, Alison. He's um, a real honour to talk to as I say, a giant of British politics. And he's sharp, interesting, mischievous to the end. Yes. Laughing. Rishi won't be known for his tax cutting, he says. Corporation tax shouldn't rise. He's not impressed with the leadership of the Bank of England since Mervyn King. Certainly isn't, And no. then that incredible rapprochement with, with Margaret Thatcher. I must say that after the interview, we enjoyed lunch together. We talked for another hour he was recalling in incredible detail a lecture he gave in 1984, the famous Mays lecture. Economic historians will know all about that, where he basically flipped round the whole economic orthodoxy of how Western economies run themselves, paving the way for Bank of England independence. He was recounting cabinet meetings, literally telling me where people were seated and what they said. It was, you know, journalism isn't always easy, but it was a huge pleasure and an honour for him to invite me to go and see him and to talk to him on tape, albeit quite briefly. I thought it was a privilege to listen, and I'm sure Planet Normal listeners will like me. I felt it was very moving as well because I think Nigel Lawson clearly rates you, rates your economics knowledge, your work as a journalist, and I felt a strong sense that you were kindreds although he's clearly your senior by sort of 40 years. 
But I sort of felt you have to carry the torch, co-pilot. And I also felt that there he was, you know, in Downing Street with Margaret Thatcher next door, those two astonishing, brilliant people bestriding the national landscape like colossuses. And now we have Jeremy Hunt as the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who, as you say, is about to put up corporation tax. I mean, it does feel like we've fallen among lightweights, to be polite, doesn't it? It's so easy for us as, you know, scribblers. We're bystanders, we're commentators, Alison. It really hit me hard. And he, and he really looked at me with a beady eye and, and said, I thought the government was doing something wrong, so I wanted to do something about it. You know, as somebody yeah. who... Yeah, he was a journalist. ...came up through the, the Financial Times, Spectator, mm. when he was, you know, quite late in his life, actually, in his early 40s, he got into Parliament in Leicestershire and Blaby, of course, and rose very, very quickly and became this hugely influential figure. And I do think, yeah, we laughed and joked, it was a lot harder back then to say that his policies, that Margaret Thatcher's policies ultimately did the country good. But even among a lot of my friends on the left, I have many, many friends on the left, as you know, Alison, they acknowledge, albeit behind closed doors, it, it was crazy. We did need to do something about the country. I just wanted to throw a number into this sort of political retrospective. The ONS has just brought out some figures this week, Alison, that in December, at the peak of the latest strike action, absolutely huge number of strikes going on. It felt as if everyone was on strike, the train drivers, mm. the university lecturers, the civil servants, ambulance workers and so on. In December, we lost to strike action 873,000 working days okay so mm -hmm. the number of people who were off work because of strikes at the height of the winter of discontent or just before in september 1979 rather than 870 odd thousand days lost in a single month we lost 11.7 million days to strike action it just shows you as lord lawson brought out so brilliantly there the huge progress that was made and it was painful it was difficult they were getting hammered from all sides not least in the press but across the house of commons and yet people like him stood tall and they were conviction politicians yes. and he speaks slowly he is in his own words frail but what a powerful thing to say absolutely and as you said that conviction politician he he said I don't want to sound boastful which did make me <laughs> smile really but my time was a good time and he said I do think that we the Thatcher government left the country in a better state than we found it and however quietly you know understated that was you can't say better than that can you it was a revolution it was a decorous revolution but what he and Margaret did together was phenomenal and did pull our country back from the brink. And I think now we look after 13 years of Conservative government and we can't find many aspects of public life which have been improved. So I did feel incredibly touched by listening to that extraordinary man and thinking about the legacy that they left us and whether that's been squandered. And he did say, didn't he, Liam, the Conservatives are going to have to reinvent themselves. The Conservative Party will have to reinvent itself. And boy, is that the case. Now on to our listener emails. The messages you send to planetnormal 
at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We absolutely love to read them. We've had a, a deluge this week, Liam, in the light of the lockdown files, the great scoop of the Daily Telegraph. And here is one from a person much beloved of Planet Normal. Listeners will remember the story of Robert Styler and his wife, Josephine. Josephine was in a care home during lockdown and Robert was unable to visit her, caused him great, great distress. And we all fought, didn't we, as a little valiant team to get Robert in to see Josie and they had one last dinner, one last dance. Anyway, Robert has written to us this week. Dear all at Planet Normal, today is my 86th birthday and what a present this week's lockdown files from the Telegraph has been. What a vindication for all your hard work. It was so brave of you to see this through in spite of the fact that the blob would have delighted in suffocating you. I sat here, my vision clouded with tears as I read Alison's appraisal covering the three years of shame. That's an article which you'll be able to find in the show notes. Those who contributed to that period of shame now have nowhere to hide and you and all who supported you have every reason to be proud of sticking to your guns when there were times you must all have felt the world was against you. I have no words which adequately express my feelings of gratitude for the kindness you have so generously bestowed upon me and Josephine and our family. I'm also quite sure that the thousands of others who have trod the same path as myself will have received the same comfort and support that your courageous campaigning gave us all when they must have felt, as I did, that there was no one on their side. Just off to birthday lunch. Wish you were here. With love to you all, Robert. That's absolutely wonderful, isn't it? Yeah. Here's one, Alison, about a subject that you might find surprising. (laughs) Dear Alison and Liam, hard though it is to believe, I'm writing an email with the subject line in defence of Matt Hancock. Good grief. Am I the only one to feel, writes Louis, that there is something very unseemly and suspicious about the Matt Hancock pile-on? As an NHS doctor and vocal lockdown critic since March 2020, I think Matt Hancock deserves his share of the blame for our disastrous national response to COVID-19, but not the entirety of it. So we've learned from the WhatsApp messages that Matt Hancock is narcissistic, self-serving and pretty dim. Who knew? (laughs) It seems that by heaping opprobrium on Matt's app, Hancock, the blameworthy establishment is seeking to shift attention and accountability for its own egregious failings onto this admittedly hapless dork. (laughs) Yes, Matt was hopeless, but so were almost all MPs, civil servants, public health leaders, senior doctors and the entire educational establishment. And that's just for starters. As predicted, there will be very few individuals or institutions by the end of 2023 who ever did anything as cruel and short-sighted as supporting lockdown. It will just be poor old Matt and his toe-curling messages left to carry the can. History, as anticipated, is being rewritten in real time. Don't let them get away with it. Keep up the good work, Louis. I do think, Louis, that you make a very good point. And I'm well aware that Hancock being made a scapegoat for the whole thing is not acceptable. Many, many people are implicated in what happened. You're not going to be apologising to Matt Hancock soon, are you, like you did to Gavin Williamson? There will be no apology from Pearson Towers to Matthew Hancock. And as Mrs Slocum said, I am unanimous in that. (laughs) I am unanimous. Let us never forget what those restrictions imposed with such glee by that man did. So, Rob, 
on what we should do with Matt Hancock. Solitary confinement for the little weasel, like the treatment of my 89-year-old father who was isolated in a care facility and my 92-year-old mother could not see him for two weeks. Then, within another two weeks, he had died. Utterly disgraceful, Hancock. And finally, this is a very personal one also. Suzanne. I just wanted to thank you for your article on the lockdown files, Alison. Like me, you and Liam were demonised, but we were right. It made me cry. It was like all my anger and sadness suddenly had a release through your words. It was cathartic. I've been trying to think of a way to mark this month, three years on from the first lockdown. I don't want to forget what they did to us, how they stopped me from seeing my family in the UK. I live in Chicago made my two-year-old wear a mask for eight hours a day for almost two years and made me give birth to my son alone in an empty hospital because, well, I'm still not sure why, or how I had to choose between getting vaccinated or losing my job and therefore my ability to provide for my family and how I was turned away from restaurants and gyms and public spaces for not being vaccinated and was told... If I didn't vaccinate my child when she turned five, she would be excluded too. The list goes on. Needless to say, the last three years have broken something in me. I'm less trusting of my fellow citizens and certainly of government. I was, like many others, turned into a liar and a criminal for doing the most innocuous of things like organising for my children to see their grandparents in another state or sometimes not wearing a mask. I know my tale is not unique. It's one of thousands and it's far from the most tragic. So I think I will mark this month by taking a minute of silence to remember those who suffered even more than myself. The good people like yourselves who were a voice for the voiceless and for all the good citizens who played their small part by resisting and challenging the rules. It's what helped me make it through to the other side. Sincerely, Suzanne. I agree with a lot of that, Suzanne. Mug winner Bob, as he must be called. He's done it again, the planet normal bard. The uproar surrounding the religious views of Kate Ford, writes Bob, has highlighted the hostility faced by many Christians who dare to discuss their faith in public. Kate Forbes, of course, is a candidate to become leader of the SNP. A number of similar cases have hit the headlines in recent weeks, says Bob, including Christians losing their jobs for saying the wrong thing and a woman being arrested in the street on suspicion of silent prayer. Even though I'm an atheist, I find these developments deeply worrying. I may not believe in God, but I'm a devout believer in freedom of worship. Thanks again for Planet Normal, says Bob, the podcast I listen to religiously. And here's his latest oeuvre. Would you believe it? It's the title. They're coming after Christians. It's one almighty row. Your crucifix could make them cross, so you'd better hide it now. Don't tell them you love Jesus and a part of his great flock. They'll damn you for eternity. They'll point at you and mock. Don't talk about your morals or your attitude to sin. They'll brand you as a bigot. It's a battle you can't win. Hooray for modern Britain. It's so tolerant and fair. But if they catch you being Christian then you haven't got a prayer. He's done it again. He's done it again. Absolutely vintage, Bob. Finally, before we go, a very short email from Barry. As I have said, ever since the outset of all the COVID nonsense, what's the difference between a conspiracy theory and the truth? Usually about two years. (laughs) Thank you, Barry. And on that bombshell... That's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary for sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week, it's your turn. 
I'm very magnanimously going to give it to Louis. Louis. Who's sort of stuck up for Matt Hancock while calling him a hapless dork. So I, I'll forgive you, Louis. <laughs> Please send your full address to Planet Normal so that we can send you one of the coveted mugs. And put in your email, mug winner, Louis. If you enjoy Planet Normal, we really hope you do. Please do leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It does help others to find the podcast. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampett, and our big Planet Normal boss, Louisa Wells. <laughs> Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.